when you see some of these patients early on, you think, oh, God, I don't know whether they're going to do any good at all. And then you see them in the street and they don't realise you're sort of walking past and you're sort of looking at them acting very normally with their friends and having a normal life and you think... That's so good to see them getting about their life and no one would know mm. uh, what they've been through but you know what they've been through and it's just amazing. Like, wow, God, I thought that person was really in trouble and there they are, Sunday morning with their friends, you know, having brunch together at a pretty advanced age looking fabulous. Hey, Refam. My name's Kate and welcome to Keeping It Real the podcast Talking Transplants. This week we're joined by Dr. Angela Webb, a specialist plastic and reconstructive surgeon. This episode is a must listen. As the head of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Peter Mac, a renowned cancer centre in Melbourne, she's operated on just about every part of the body, top to bottom, inside to out. Angela also led the first and only ever hand transplant in Australia. So sit back and listen while Angela reveals the most rewarding and the most difficult parts of working in reconstructive surgery, trauma surgeries that have stuck with her, and the most common misconceptions about her work. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, When I was going through your bio and everything you've done, intimidatingly impressive backdrop you've got. (laughs) Um, But I think we'll, we'll kind of unpack that as we go through. But when you kind of started on going through medicine and everything, had you always thought you'd do plastic surgery? Uh, no, I was more interested in sports medicine, actually, but mm-hmm. I did some work experience during um, early medical school that I was lucky enough for a family member to arrange and realised that sports med doctors spend a lot of time helping out orthopaedic surgeons, so assisting, because we need surgical assistance. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, gee, am I going to do all this training and then end up uh, really assisting surgery and I thought well maybe I should be more interested in the surgery because I I really enjoy that side of medicine Uh, and when I did some experience in the United Kingdom during my medical school I worked with orthopedic surgeons and I really enjoyed the hand surgery and in Victoria most of that hand surgery is actually done by plastic surgeons so that's really kind of I moved uh, in that direction for that reason but of course I've learned to love lots of the other parts of plastic surgery as well so actually don't do nearly as much hand surgery as I did. That's so interesting because Kim was the same where she started wanting to do sports medicine, then kind of went to plastics, started in hand and microsurgery and then yeah. kind of came across. Yeah. Interesting. Because I know you said that they were assisting orthopods, but that did never really appeal. It was more plastics. Yeah. So uh, plastic surgery tends to do, without disrespecting orthopedics, orthopedics tend to do the bigger joints and yeah. trauma and spines, knees, hips, things like that, which is very interesting, but is more somewhat repetitive type of surgery, whereas right. plastic surgery is is absolutely not repetitive mm-hmm. uh, and does require a bit more creativity. And so I did like that interaction and it's a little bit more with the patient rather than with the scan to an extent. Right. Yeah, Scans okay. are a very small part of our workload and I, and I really enjoy that side of things. Back to you talking about um, that hand surgery, I saw that you led the surgical team for the first hand transplant yeah. in Australia yeah. in 2011, which... It seems crazy to me that the first of anything could kind of be in yeah. the 2010s, but what exactly is a hand transplant? What did that look like? Yeah, so interestingly, so it was first and actually only in Australia. We still haven't oh, done wow. one since. So it is, a, it is a really uncommon procedure and it's when someone has lost ideally both hands but certainly one hand and you can then take 
a person who's died's hand with their permission, obviously family permission, keep that in good condition like you do a kidney or a heart or lungs and then you can attach it to the person who has lost their hand under an operation obviously and then use drugs to suppress their immune system from rejecting it the same way you would with kidneys and liver and lung, heart, all those sort of things. So there's very specific kind of indications for it and you need really motivated patients because unlike a heart or a kidney that will just work or not, most of the time work, we have great success in organ transplantation. But with a hand, you then have to make it work. So there's a lot of rehab involved in the same way if you've injured, you know, cut your arm off in an accident, workplace accident, home accident, car accident, uh, you have to come back from that. Nerves have to regrow, tendons have to recover. And so you really need motivated patients who are compliant with medicines for their life, the rest of their life, otherwise the hand will die, and who are compliant with rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. really motivated, but also are aware that it's 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 not part of them. So it's got this big psychosocial impact as well. And so it was a real privilege to um, meet Peter, who's very in the news, he's very open about who he is, and then uh, to be part of the St Vincent's team. And I guess my strong suit is organisation. And so I I worked with a fantastically dynamic uh, immunologist, so someone who would look after the medical side, and she'd done lots and lots of kidney transplant patients, and so she was really good at helping us. And she's very energetic kind of person, and we went overseas, really researched how we were going to do it here, Mm -hmm. and then we're able to get all of the other stakeholders back here on side. So we needed the, the, the people who are going to ask the, the donor family for that gift yeah. uh, to, to be on side and know that we weren't going to stuff anything up because it's really important that the heart, heart, lungs and liver and all those things that also get gifted were going to be looked after so that yeah. we weren't then going to stuff it up for someone else. Right. So there's a lot of background work that went in. Was really, yeah, it was a privilege to be involved and it's absolutely massively changed uh, Plummer and Peter patient's life and his family's life as a consequence so yeah. it was even better than I thought it might be it's great how how long does that surgery take uh well about nine hours or so um was was how long we took for that patient and uh it varies from patient to patient exactly how many you know at what level you're doing it but that was and we had a big team so yeah um that was kind of how we could how we could do it. It'd be hard to do it a lot shorter. Obviously, it also involved getting the donor hand, and mm-hmm. that was a separate, short operation, yeah. really. Oh right. How long How long had he not had a hand for? for a few years, actually? Yeah, and okay. he lost lost it through sepsis, which is quite a common way of doing it right. in, in Australia, anyway, because okay. we don't have quite the same level of trauma or mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of war injuries, which is where the Americans get a lot of theirs. Is from returned so- servicemen, unfortunately. And then uh, he had lived without lower legs and without hands. Oh. And if you don't have good hands, you can't put on your lower legs. So yeah. if you need to get out of bed and go to the toilet, you right. can't do it. So this poor fellow uh, really was unable to be left alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was really, really motivated. The ins and outs of what the risks were and what the trade-off and benefits for him would be. So it was two hands, the surgery? One. Interestingly, we did something to alter his other hand. Now, that was probably because we were being a bit conservative. Yeah. Like if we did it again, we could potentially give him two hands. But because it was uh, the first in Australia, we all knew that there was a risk of something going wrong and we felt that if we, we, we basically did what we call a metacarpal hand. So even though he was missing 
all of his fingers, you can make a short part of your wrist and the short part of your hand into a sort of a grabbing hand. And so we had done that already and he decided it was functional enough Mm -hmm. if he got a good hand to work with the two. Right, okay. But, yeah, he actually didn't have a proper hand on the other side. So elsewhere and if we did it today, we would, you know, we would give some consideration for doing both hands. But we also looked at the if if things went wrong down the track and you have to take off one hand it would be less morbid for him. Yeah, 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 that makes And also, sense. of course, the rehabilitation. It's it's a lot easier to do one than two. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so it was fascinating. What are the kind of reasons behind not doing another one? It just hasn't been another... Yeah, so it, the, I guess part of it now and particularly in this where we are today in 2023, there's better and better prosthetics. So rob, robotic prosthetics is going to be where we're probably going to move to next. Mm-hmm. Because the drugs that you have to take to stop the hand being rejected okay, yeah. really still have massive implications for your ongoing health. Now, uh, Peter was in his 60s. Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, I think at the time, might have been the oldest hand recipient. Wow. And that's a good thing because he doesn't have to live for a long time with the side effects of medication. Whereas if you're doing a 20-year-old, mm-hmm. you've got then 70 years of the side effects of medication now, that's okay if it's life-saving like a kidney, but it's not really okay if it's life-enhancing like a hand. Right. And so it's a little bit of a trade-off there. So we haven't been able to get better drugs that are more targeted that don't cause diabetes, risk of cancer, other problems. So that's held transplantation back to some extent. There's also been probably some things go wrong overseas where uh, that you that have to say, you know, the risks and benefits, you're always weighing it up. It's It's... The surgery is not straightforward. It's relatively straightforward for our team. It's these and some other plastic surgeons to replant a hand. So the actual technical putting it back together, but actually making it work and making it work in the long term. Some of the patients in particular with composite tissue allo transplantation, that's where you put a face or hands back on, uh, uh, can get down the track chronic rejection. That's where your body no longer wants to keep the organ and starts to reject it. Mm And that's more common with when you're transferring skin and clumps of tissue rather than a solid organ like a liver or a kidney. Right. Mm. So there's a couple of reasons why it's been held back, I guess. But interestingly, even having done the hand transplant, I would look towards the what, what are the robotics out there if, yeah. if I had that injury just to avoid taking the drugs, to be honest. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. My friend, she works at the Royal Children's Hospital and she says like they've got a girl there where it's like it's this constant kind of balancing of the drugs between the like it causing cancer and then yeah. them getting on top of that and then that's starting to reject the organ and then them getting on top of that and it kind of like seesaws exactly. between. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And w- I, it, when it's not like the heart keeping the patient alive or the uh, lungs keeping the patient alive, you really do have to balance things all the time. Yeah. And so if there's any other way, you have to uh, pursue that. Also, some of the patients who've come forward, they, they really need to be very psychologically stable and well supported by a good network. And that hasn't always been the case. And certainly we wouldn't want to do any harm. It's too big an operation. One of the first cases that the patient did stop taking his medications, not in Australia, but the first hand transplant. Yeah. And another one who'd had partial face, she famously died from um, uh, psychological issues and another one has died from cancer. So there's yeah, there's some right. pretty high profile cases where it reminds everyone that, you know, you've got to look at the long term, not just the short and medium term. Yeah. But uh, 
Peter has got a fantastically close family and uh, really was in a good situation. So he was a great candidate for yeah. it. Oh, great. In terms of hand surgery in general, because um, I, I know quite a lot of plastics kind of will go that route, is it mainly trauma-based or...? Uh, for plastic surgery, our trauma would be probably slightly heavier towards the hand injuries mm-hmm. in the minor. Once it's major, of course, we get involved in lower limb reconstruction right. and a lot of facial injuries. Thankfully, once they improve windscreens, our facial the facial trauma related to motor, motor cars is actually far less than it used to be. When the windscreens used to shatter, we were in oh. all the time. And thankfully oh, that was only really probably at the start of when Richard and I were coming into to training that those most of those windscreens had disappeared, thankfully, because right. they just used to cause horrific pe- injuries to people. Yeah. Uh, whereas now the windscreens, they're like plastic sheeting, like mm-hmm. even though they're glass, they're, they're plastic sheeting, so they don't cause that amount of hand, uh, facial injuries. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do all over the body um, and, and get involved with lots of other disciplines to, to look after the trauma side of things. But in terms of hand surgery, there's a lot of uh, arthritis and that's what we, you know, arthritis oh, issues okay. or inflammatory issues. The most common hand or, or operation we probably do would be carpal tunnel surgery, which is where a nerve mm-hmm. gets compressed as it goes across your wrist, that's so common, very uh, straightforward surgery and it would be one of the most common operations we do. Yeah, my dad surgery. just had that the, um, through go. the little keyhole yeah. and he yeah. was like, because they did both at once, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, what do you do? And he was like, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I feel, he's like, I can't take the like lid off a bottle but anything else I'm fine with. Yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. No, they're yeah. good operations, especially when they're done well. Obviously, like any operation, things can go wrong and so it needs yeah. to be done with in really good hands and, uh, yeah, you can these days do two hands if you need to and yeah. have a really good recovery because we know getting people to move about and use their hands actually reduces some of the risks of operations in terms of long-term stiffness and yeah. pain problems. Can't believe I know so many people who've had hand surgery yeah. this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of reconstructive stuff, we've talked, uh, we've done an episode on breast cancer reconstruction, um, which is absolutely fascinating. But what else does that extend to that you've done? Because I was honestly only thinking of it from a um, cancer view, but you just saying about limb reconstruction. I was like, oh, yeah, there'd be so many other things. So what kind of, uh, maybe what are your most common surgeries or what else could it extend to outside of? Well, so where I work at Peter Mac, we're doing a lot of cancer reconstruction, obviously, and sarcomas or other types of cancers can occur anywhere on Mm -hmm. the body. And where you've lost a lot of tissue, that's where plastic surgeons are often required to fill those areas where they're trying to make them look as normal as possible. So the head and neck area, but also anywhere anywhere where these cancers can occur, which is absolutely everywhere from your, yeah, right. under the sole of your foot. Melanomas are a, a classic one mm-hmm. um, but uh, from the skin, but also the deeper tissues, you know, fat-related tumours, even pelvic-related tumours we get involved in, um, bowel, bowel cancers where it's caused so much damage that they've lost some of the openings of their body and so we have to reconstruct and make those much more functional or even the support systems within the the guts basically to stop the guts um, falling through into the pelvis area so there's all sorts of uh, operations that we really commonly you know every week get involved in 
even some of the kidney-related things there's, there's, um, and urinary, so bladder-related things. There's all sorts of tumours that can involve enough of a defect for us to get involved with. And, of course, we do our own cancers like the ones I mentioned before, sarcomas and uh, skin cancers where we take out the tumour and we're reconstructing yeah. as well. And Do you work with other surgeons like who might specialise, like a gastro surgeon or something yep. in those yep. situations? Yes, yes. And some of the uh, big operations like these big bowel cancer pelvic ones, you can have, you know, even 10 surgeons involved in that kind of operation right. um, with various people having their little part to play. Yeah, okay, because it sounds complicated. complicated. They are, and that's why you know, somewhere like Peter Mac is a great institution where you've got that multidisciplinary input to make mm-hmm. sure that everyone really has their part that they know really well mm-hmm. and that they can rely on others to do the bits that they know really well to yeah. put it all together. Is that, can that be tricky at times managing like all those different, because obviously everybody would think they have different levels of priorities in terms of their things. Is that yeah. kind of difficult? So that's to- why it's important to work in teams regularly yeah. so that we all know how that other person works and to try and really optimise the patient outcomes. Yeah. yeah. Same with the breast reconstruction. You know, you've got multiple breast surgeons, especially if you're doing both sides. Sometimes you have one breast surgeon, sometimes two, and then you've got often two plastic surgeons that you're working at where we're going to take the tissue to. Mm-hmm. Breast reconstruction can be implant, but if you're moving parts around what we call free flap surgery where we're transferring part of the body to another part of the body. Yeah, which um, I've brought up at most dinner parties I've been at. I, I'm like, do you? I was like, it's like 10 hours per side. And, yeah. and they're going, then there's one person going up through the rib yes. and then they bring it. And I'm like, no, you people don't understand. It's so <laughs> crazy. Yeah, people get very caught up on how long that takes uh, mm. and the kind of extent of surgery um, yeah. that we're involved in. Yeah, I think just that I'm like I'm definitely not a careful, precise person, not my strength in any way. And I think just hearing that and then just hearing you even say about the internal things, I'm like, oh, God, (laughs) you just have to be – it would be so intricate and delicate. Yeah, a lot of what plastic surgeons do is intricate and delicate. Mm. But I guess having so much familiarity with it, it becomes easier to manage all the intricate and delicate parts to make it seem like much more like driving a car. Driving a car is a really complicated operation that you could kill someone with if you don't do it right. Yeah. But with focus and repetition, mm. 10,000 hours and you can really try and get it right. Yeah, okay. Most of the time. There unfortunately, no guarantees, but <laughs> really try They're and pretty make high it almost, guarantees. almost yeah. perfect. Almost perfect. We should uh, specify that you're the head of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Peter yeah, Mac, right which now. is uh, cancer hospital in I think what was funny when I moved down here and everyone's like Peter Mac and I was like I don't know what, what you're that? saying to me yeah. <laughs> it's a cancer Lingo. hospital <laughs> yeah very famous one yeah. with Victorians um which for almost a decade hell of an achievement yeah. what's um was there anything in particular that kind of appealed to you about I know as you you went in your journey through plastics was there something about reconstruction in particular or in that in that cancer area that really appealed to you? Yeah, I think so. I, I do. I mean, I, the trauma is fun uh, and it and in some ways is easy because something's already gone wrong and you're mm. making it better. When you're doing reconstruction, you're often dealing with patients who are in the shock of having a diagnosis that's pretty profound and lo- potentially life-changing and so you're then part of making that better it really is the all-round all package because you're not just doing a technical operation you're very much involved in the counseling beforehand which can be tough but it, 
you know, often the toughest things you do in life are the most rewarding because you're really investing in it. And so it's great to see those patients down the track. With trauma, you don't necessarily see those patients for a long time, but with yeah. uh, reconstruction you often do mm-hmm. and you really get to see patients along that journey and that's very exciting yeah. as well, rewarding work. Do you have any patients in this time that have really stuck with you that you've kind of, you have seen through that journey? Definitely, definitely. Um, unfortunately, some of the trauma ones stick with you in particular because the stories behind what's happened um, can be quite sad. Although, but again, some of them, when you see some of these patients early on, you think, oh God, I don't know whether they're going to do any good at all. And then you see them in the street and they don't realise you're sort of walking past and you're sort of looking at them acting very normally with their friends and having yeah. a normal life and you think, that's so good. Oh my god, that's <laughs> or even people in the chills. lift working, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, oh, I won't like, say hi, you know, unless they say hi to me. Just pretend I, you know, yeah. But to see them getting about their life, and no one would know mm. uh, what they've been through, but you know what they've been through, and it's just amazing. You think like, wow, God, I thought that person was, you know, really yeah. in a lot of trouble, and there they are on a Sunday morning with their friends, you know, having brunch together at a pretty oh. advanced age, looking. Fabulous. Yeah. That's that's exciting. That's so nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. going to cry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. And then the fact that even you're recognising them, I think, speaks volumes about how involved you are in that process. Yeah, yeah. No, you very much get to know people often pretty well. What What is it like working at Peter Max specifically? I mean, it is focusing on cancer. Is it quite like emotionally draining compared to other jobs you've had or...? Yeah, look, it could be, uh, healthcare can be a little bit like that, but I actually think, well, breast cancer in particular, the survival rates are fabulous. Melanoma, the vast majority do well, but when they don't do well, that can be a bit tougher, I have to say, because it's often younger people and that can be really hard. Uh, The new drugs have made a big difference to that. But the great thing is about an environment like that is that everyone is pulling together and often the patients even in really tough situations as well as the families are are very grateful for making the best of a bad situation which is all you can do in life you can't necessarily control what happens to you but you can control how you react to it and we're part of that process of just trying to see the silver lining and trying to make it the best they they can have yeah especially if it is a palliative situation or a terminal situation yeah with, with skin cancers, I saw that you, I mean, much like all the other work you've described, you work with kind of a range of specialties when they're difficult. What would that look like? Is that like if there was one on a facial nerve or something? What is a kind of difficult uh, or a more complex skin cancer situation? Yeah, yeah. Working with ear, nose and throat surgeons really closely when it's, you know, burrowing into the ear or the um, or the sinuses or bones there or into the nerves of the face that move the face. So we work with ear, nose and throat surgeons very closely closely we work with dermatologists so that we're trying to work out well what does this patient you know really have to have what 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 other non-surgical options do we have just to try and tide them over radiation specialists they're the doctors that give radiation to help with tumors and so we're always trying to work out what would be the least morbid what's giving the best survival you know keeping them alive for the longest with the least uh, trouble from treatments uh, but we work with all sorts of specialists, actually. And again, in a place like Peter Mac, that's what it's designed for. Yeah. Really, our clinics are not just one specialty unit. We work in in more tumor streams where we're working with other specialists who work for that type of cancer or that anatomical region, uh, and that makes it easier to do better work, basically. Yeah. 
Do you ever imagine being that you'd be across this many, like you're across the whole body from the sounds of it, from like outer to inner, top to bottom? Yeah, plastic surgery is very much like that. And I get that from the junior people who are interested in plastic surgery. They just say, wow, you know, you you sort of operate everywhere. Mm. And that that is very interesting. It it, it means that you never have a dull day at work, ever. Uh, And even if you're doing a similar operation, the patient can make it seem so different or the actual tumour can make it seem so different. Mm -hmm. So there's just never any boredom. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any common misconceptions about your job that you can't get a lot? Yeah, well, funny, I look back when I was first uh, medical myself and perhaps about what you thought about plastic surgeons in when you're a lay person. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, when I always think of plastic surgery, I don't think of cosmetic surgery first. Yeah. But I guess that's what we are more known for in the media. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes have to check myself as to what people might understand about what, what I do. I think that's most of my questions. I said to you earlier that um, you've done amazing research on stem cell research as well uh, as a part of your insane biography yes I've done a lot of work with cells that that was yeah. that's not the exciting part of my no. career but, but like um, it's, oh, it reads so exciting I yeah. was like I can't believe hopefully made that little bit of contribution and certainly gives me a great understanding of you know how hard it is to make breakthroughs and how much work has to go on behind the scenes and to really value that work that goes on yeah to really make better drugs make better treatments check how t- treatments are going and to have the respect uh, for those toiling away in labs because it's, it's 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 much easier to talk, to, for me anyway, to talk to a patient, do what needs to be done and then to see them walk off looking good. Whereas when you're looking at the same cell culture for six months, it can be, <laughs> you know, a much <laughs> harder, <laughs> harder road. So that was uh, very uh, interesting to have that experience and to hopefully make my tiny bit of contribution to skin stem cells which is you know looking at how skin grows and what markers there are within skin to identify what cells are doing what yeah what are but i know we kind of talked about um in terms of prosthetics and robotics are there any other advancements you see making a big impact on the work you do yeah so Within that process is also being able to better integrate that into the body systems and I think right. that will get better and better. Uh, so like being able to, to we call it osseointegration, so being able to make the bones carry those processes in a safe way. Right. Anytime you're putting something on a bone, there's a risk of infection because it's foreign material that you're connecting to the bone. But I think that area will continue to improve. Mm-hmm. And it will make it much more attractive for actually uh, putting, and it's, we use them for noses and ears and eyes. So there is the technology there, but I think that technology will get better and better. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's going to make uh, an um, headway. Also, being able to grow tissues better, and my stem cell research in skin is is a tiny fragment of what goes on in the world about looking at how we can you know, grow organs or supplement damaged tissue by actually using cells in the lab rather than having to uh, give drugs to replace what's missing. So in a heart attack, just to work around it, but to actually try and improve that. And certainly in plastic surgery, there'll be areas in, in particular like breasts. I hope maybe in my lifetime that we will stop being doing these big free tissue transfers where we're really carving up one part of the body to move it to another. Um, and 
whilst that's very well t- tolerated because it's a bit like a tummy tuck, uh, we don't really want to be doing that extensive surgery on people if we can avoid it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there'll be lots of progress. And already in my medical career, you know, in the 30 years, it's been amazing what's happened, really. And melanoma would be one area that I'd say. The drugs that you can be given now is, it's so great to see. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating. Um, And hopefully we'll have you again soon. Uh, My pleasure. If you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at Replastic Surgery. That's all for today, and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.